Go ahead and take your Bibles and open with me to Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 56, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Now, as we get into the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see that Luke is recalling for his readers the good news of what we celebrate at Easter, what we celebrate during this time of the year. Of course, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we celebrate more than just the resurrection of the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is reminding the Corinthians concerning the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to use 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 5 to give us our outline for what we're going to look at in the gospel of Luke over the next two weeks. And so look with me, if you will, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 5. I'll give you a brief overview, and then we'll transition into the gospel of Luke this morning. So Paul says to the Corinthian church, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So let's pause there for just a minute, because here's what Paul is about to do. Paul is about to declare to us the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul is about to explain to us why this is good news. And in doing so, he reminds the Corinthian church, this is not new to you. And most likely, you sitting in here this morning, this is not new to us either. We've heard the gospel before. Amen? As a matter of fact, I can look out and I can see everyone in this room has been taught the gospel. I can say as Paul did, I have preached this to you before. We don't have any visitors this morning. I recognize everyone's face. I say with Paul, I have preached this gospel to you before. And I want to remind you of the good news. Notice what Paul says, picking up in the second half of verse 1. He says, in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word. I preach to you unless you believed in vain. So let's pause there because here's what Paul says. He says, I've preached this to you and this gospel, this good news has had an impact in your life. He says, if you've believed it and unless you heard it and believed in vain, in other words, unless you denied it, if you heard the gospel and you put your faith in the gospel, then Paul says the gospel has had two impacts in your life. First of all, he says the gospel is that which you stand on. It is the firm foundation of your life. Everything that you do in your life on earth has been impacted by the fact that you believe the gospel. Amen? Listen, my throat, I'm just going to power through. If I lose my voice, I don't care. But I do need this. I need energy from you, okay? I got, listen, I'm eight hours away. It's like 10 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock at night in Armenia. My body's going to wind down if we're not careful. I need you to give me some energy, amen? All right, we awake? We're ready? I mean, this is Easter time. We're supposed to be celebrating, amen? And that's what Paul says here. He says, I want you to understand that I proclaimed the gospel to you and the gospel has had such an impact in your life that it is now what you stand on. It is what is most important to you. It is the foundation of your life. 
And that is true for us if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. The gospel, above all else, has impacted our life to the point that it is what we stand firm on. It is what matters to us. Amen? Paul says, but it's not only what you stand on, it is what is saving you. It's what is saving you. Notice that Paul speaks of salvation here not as just a one and done, but as a process. Because as you and I know, although we've accepted the truth of the gospel, although we are standing firm on the truth of the gospel, although we would claim that we have been saved because we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we also know that we are not perfect yet. Amen? There's a day coming, however, when we will finally be rid of these sinful bodies, we will finally receive our glorified bodies, and we will be able to say that my full salvation has come. Amen? But until that moment, we are being saved by the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says to the Corinthian church, I want you to know this. The gospel that I preach to you, that has become the foundation of your life, that gospel by which you are currently being saved, Paul says, I want to remind you of what the gospel is. And that's where we pick up in verse 3. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance... That which I also received. And here's four components of the gospel I want you to notice. Number one, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Number two, that he was buried. Number three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And number four, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now let's just flip back over now to the Gospel of Luke. Because what we're going to do is we're going to take those four components. Jesus died, was buried, was raised, and appeared. And we are going to trace those components. And we're going to look back at the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to make sure that we understand not only the reality of those components but the implications of those components on us. In other words, we want to verify that they historically happened in the Gospel of Luke, but we also want to know what it means to us and why it impacts us. And so that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the first two this morning and the last two next week. And so here's where we're going to begin. Number one, the death of Jesus paid the price for our sins. Now look with me now in Luke chapter 23. We're going to pick up in verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour. Sorry, I'll give you time to get there. Luke chapter 23 verse 44. All right, I hear less pages, so let's go. It was about the sixth hour... And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And when the sun's light failed and the centurion of the temple, or excuse me, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowd that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the woman who stood followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray, and then we're going to work our way through. Lord, we again just thank you for 
giving us the opportunity to be here together this morning. Lord, to gather together without fear, without worry. Lord, as we just prayed, we know that our Iranian brothers and sisters do not have this same opportunity before them. And so, Lord, we thank you for what we get to do this morning. And Lord, I pray that we would take full advantage of it now, that you would be glorified as as we gather, we would hear your word proclaimed, and that we would respond to your word. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, again, in the text, we're going to first of all see that the death of Jesus paid the price for our sins. Now, we pick up here in the middle of the passion narrative with Jesus already hanging on the cross, having been crucified in spite of being declared innocent by Pilate and by Herod. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you read the full uh, passion narrative in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is very clear to teach us and to show us that Jesus was innocent, that he was found innocent by Pilate, he was found innocent by Herod, and even the centurion guard watching all of these events take place says, certainly this man was innocent. And so the innocence of Jesus is a huge part of the puzzle here in Luke's gospel. And so as we pick up, Jesus is there, he is hanging on the cross, all that we know of has already taken place, and Jesus is now almost to the point of giving up his spirit. And Luke tells us at the beginning of verse 44 that it was about the sixth hour. In other words, it was 12 o'clock. It was high noon. It was at the point in the day when the sun should have been at its absolute brightest when all of a sudden darkness fell upon the whole land for three hours. Now, due to the time of year that this was in the lunar calendar, understand that an eclipse here was absolutely impossible. In other words, this cannot be explained scientifically. This was not some lunar or solar eclipse. This was not just heavy clouds. This was the supernatural work of God. Where at high noon, when sun should have been at its absolute highest, God caused darkness to fall on all the land. As a matter of fact, notice the end of verse 40. Uh, verse 40, um, uh, notice the beginning of verse 45, the sun's light failed. The sun just all of a sudden stopped shining. And the question is why? What is going on? Well, as God turns the lights off, this is a picture, darkness falling is a picture of God's judgment that was about to come. God was about to judge his son Not because Jesus was guilty of anything, but because Jesus was about to take upon all the guilt and all the sin of mankind on his shoulders. And God was going to judge Jesus for our sin. And symbolically to help us understand the magnitude and the significance of what Jesus was about to do, God turns the lights off and darkness falls over the entire land. Again, not because he was guilty, but because he was about to take upon himself the sins of mankind. Remember, the penalty of sin, seen all the way back in the Garden of Eden, was and is death. And therefore, someone worthy had to pay for the sins of mankind. When you go to another country, one of the things that you have to do is you have to exchange currency. 
And, and it's one of those kind of funny things that when you get back after having gone on a trip like that, you still have foreign currency in your pocket, in your wallet. And so what has already happened at one point, as a matter of fact, we had a great, uh, we had a great um, uh, revival this past week with Ron Jorlock, and uh, we had a fantastic community-wide revival over at Hell's. And so one night as we were taking up the love offering for Ron Jor, I reached into my wallet and I pulled out and all I had at the moment was Armenian money. And I thought, just to be funny, I should throw some of that in there, but I, I didn't because, because the currency would not have worked, right? It would have just been monopoly money to the Ronjor family. It would have just been paper. It would have been a joke. It would have absolutely held no value for them. And so what we learn is that we order, in order to buy stuff in this country or in a foreign country, no matter where we at, we have to have the proper currency. Well, notice the same is true concerning Jesus being a worthy sacrifice for us on the cross. If Jesus was not the proper currency, if he was not a worthy sacrifice, if you will, then his death would have had no impact on us. Jesus had to be fully God. He was. Jesus had to be fully man. He was. And Jesus had to be innocent from sin. And he was. And that is what made his death on the cross a worthy sacrifice that was efficient and effective in paying for the sins of us. And so what we have is that just before Jesus is going to give up his spirit, God causes darkness to fall upon all the earth so that God could say judgment is about to come. And praise God, it was Jesus who took God's judgment so that our sins could be forgiven. Amen? Well, not only did darkness fall upon the land, but notice as well in verse 45, while the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And so not only did the sun stop shining, but the curtain that separated man from God was torn in two. Now, this was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. This was that curtain that symbolically and literally was God saying to mankind, you cannot come into my presence. As a matter of fact, only one man, one time a year, was able to enter in behind the veil, behind the curtain, into the presence of God. And remember, he did so with absolute fear and trembling, right? Because that man also knew that he was not worthy to be in the presence of God. And God had this perfect symbolic picture, this curtain that said, you cannot come to me. You cannot come to me. And the other gospel writers tell us that not only was this curtain torn in two, but that this curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Picturing as if God with his own hands reached down and ripped that curtain in half and then said, man, you can now come to me. Right? Because no, we no longer come to God through the curtain, through the veil. We now have access to God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so what we find is that the death of Jesus, the judgment of God upon Jesus for our sins, it not only caused our sins to be forgiven, it not only made a way that we could have forgiveness and eternal life, but it gave us access to God. Amen? 
It enabled us to be able to enter into his presence with boldness and with confidence. And so what we find is that the death of Jesus paid for the sins of mankind. Well, not only do we see that it darkness fell upon the whole earth, not only do we see that the curtain was then removed, but then notice what happens next in verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. What we find that's so significant here, and that the other gospel writers help us to see excuse me, as well, is that Jesus' life was not taken from him. Jesus was the one who said, I have the power to lay down my life, and what? To pick it up again. Now listen, as a human being, both of those things are pretty impressive. Right? Listen, I, I definitely don't have the power to pick my life back up again. Right? Like when I, when I'm, when I breathe my last, when I'm dead... I personally, within my own strength, do not have the power to raise from the dead. Now, thanks be to Christ, he will raise me from the dead, amen? But on my own, if, I, if, if something happens and I drop dead right here on the stage, don't expect me to get back up, because I don't have that power. But I also don't have the power to lay my life down either. Now sure, I could, I could do something, I could jump from something, I could, I could, I could do those things. But I can't just decide I'm done living and then breathe my last. That is power as well. Amen. And so what Jesus does here is he cries out to his father and he says, Father, I am ready to pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. I'm ready. And so he says, Father, I commit my spirit into your hands. And then he breathed his last. The other gospel writers say that he, he gave up his spirit. And that just like he said he had the power to do, he did. He laid down his life so that three days later he could pick it back up again. Amen? But what we see is that Jesus died so that he could pay for the sins of mankind. And then notice what takes place when the centurion guards see this. He declares, certainly this man is innocent. Again, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus was innocent. He was not guilty, but that he was a worthy sacrifice. If Jesus was not innocent, then his death would be no different than anyone else's death. But because he was fully God, because he was fully man, and because he was fully innocent then his death was worthy. His death was sufficient. And so the death of Jesus paid the price for our sins. And then secondly, the burial of Jesus proved that his death was real. Look with me now in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Armithia. He was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin. He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now this man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and he laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. So the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. But on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. 
So not only was the death of Jesus paid the price for our sins, but secondly, the burial of Jesus proved that his death was real. The burial of Jesus proved that his death was real. So in verse 50, Luke ben, excuse me, in verse 50, Jesus is dead, and to prove it, Luke gives us the details of his burial. In other words, Luke wants us to know Jesus didn't just pass out. He wasn't sleeping or in a coma. Jesus was actually, literally dead. Amen? Because listen, a lot of false doctrines have been birthed out of this reality, or this, excuse me, this, this, this false teaching that Jesus was somehow not dead. That he was just asleep. He just passed out. He was in some kind of a coma. He was in a deep sleep, but he wasn't actually dead. And what Luke wants us to know, no, no, no. He was actually, really, completely, and totally dead. Amen? He was absolutely dead. So we are introduced to a man who appears in all four Gospels, Joseph of Armethia. Notice Luke gives us a great description. He's a good and righteous man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he did not agree with their treatment or their testimony concerning Jesus. As a matter of fact, he was a man looking for the kingdom of God. The other Gospel writers tell us that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. And so he goes to Pilate as a member of the Sanhedrin. He had more access to Pilate than most. He goes in and he requests the body of Jesus so that he can bury Jesus. Now, remember a few things here as we make our way through this text. First of all, the Romans were experts at death by crucifixion. This was not their first crucifixion, right? The Romans not only invented this, they perfected death by crucifixion. That's why Matthew tells us that before this, Pilate sent guards to the cross to see if these men, the two thieves, and Jesus were dead. The two thieves were not dead. And so what did they do? They broke their legs so that they would then no longer have the power to hold themselves up and breathe, but that they would slump and they would suffocate to death. They came to Jesus. They were about to break his legs until they noticed something. Jesus was already dead. They even took a spear and they pierced his side. Blood and water gushed out, confirming that Jesus was dead. All of this took place before Pilate says to Joseph, yes, you can take the body of Jesus. Why? Because the worst thing that could have happened for Pilate is that somehow Jesus showed back up later. Right? Pilate wasn't worried about him coming back from the dead, but Pilate wanted to make sure that he was really dead. And so all of this was verified and clarified before Joseph is permitted to take the body of Jesus. Jesus was dead. Secondly, Joseph was about to lose everything he had by outing himself as a follower of Christ. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of John tells us that he was also joined by Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. It's Nicodemus and Joseph that take Jesus off the cross. It's them that go and wrap his body in a shroud. It is Nicodemus who actually brings a costly amount of spices in order to perfume the body of Jesus. So what did Joseph and Nicodemus have to lose? 
if people found out that they were actually followers of Jesus? Just everything. Right? Just everything. No longer would they be welcomed amongst the Sanhedrin circles. No longer would they be looked at as respected members of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. They would have been ousted as followers of Jesus. But because they were truly followers of Christ, they were willing to risk it all so that they could bury their Lord and their Savior. Why? Because he was actually dead. They wouldn't risk it all for what they knew to be false. They wouldn't risk it all just to, just to pretend. No, they knew that he was dead and so they do everything they can to prepare the body of Jesus as quickly as they can. Now, remember what takes place at about 12 o'clock Darkness falls. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus yields up his spirit. At 6 o'clock, just so you know, the Sabbath is going to begin and therefore no longer is work going to be permitted. And so from the death of Jesus until the burial of Jesus, there's about three hours that take place. That's why everybody's in a hurry. Right? That's why the ladies we see follow the men to the tomb. They look to verify where he's at. Then they go home to prepare spices so they can bring it back. Not the next day, which would have been the Sabbath, but that following morning when they would be able to finish preparing the body of Jesus. And what we see clearly is that everyone there, everyone with a close encounter, everyone that was within uh, touch of Jesus, who could see Jesus, the Roman guards, uh, Joseph, Nicodemus, the women, they all verified and knew that Jesus was dead. He was dead. So why is the burial of Jesus so important? Because it proves the death of Jesus. And understand If Jesus did not die, then our sins have not been paid for. If Jesus did not die, then he did not overcome death and neither can we. However, since he died and was buried, then we can be sure that our sins have been paid for and our resurrection secured. We can have faith and we can know that he was raised from the dead and that one day he is coming back to establish his eternal kingdom. Amen? Because not only is Luke's gospel going to tell us that he died, that he was buried, but next week we will see that he resurrected from the dead. Amen? And to confirm the resurrection, he appears to many. And what does that matter to us? Well, it matters because that is the good news. That's the gospel. But I want to remind you, it's only good news to those who have trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Amen? And so if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then this is news, but it's not really good news until you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And then believers, I also want to remind you, this is good news This is the gospel that the world needs to know. Amen. Shame on us if we take this good news and keep it to ourselves and don't freely and willingly share it with others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your word to us this morning. We thank you that we get to celebrate as a church family this season of Easter, this good news. Lord, that you came, that you lived a perfect and innocent life, ultimately so that you could die on the cross as a payment for our sin. 
Lord, that you would be buried, thus confirming your actual death. But Lord, as we look forward to celebrating next week, we have full confidence. We know that, Lord, then three days later, you raised from the dead, having defeated death and the grave. And Lord, that you then appeared to many to verify the resurrection. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that we would put our faith and trust in you. And Lord, I also pray that we would remember, that we would understand that this is the good news that the world needs to hear. Lord, embolden us in our witness to share the gospel with those that need to hear it. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we surrender ourselves to you now. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.